Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Let's turn again to Acts chapter 8, and we'll pick up now in verse 5. Where it says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them. And many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. So, the, the first four verses of Acts 8 told us that because of the persecution that these believers were going out into these other areas like uh, Judea and Samaria, areas outside of Jerusalem. And here it says that Philip went to the city of Samaria. So most of the time uh, when the Bible refers to Samaria, it's talking about a, a region uh, but also there is a, a city that's referred to in the Bible as Samaria. And that that city uh, became the capital of the, the northern kingdom of Israel back in the Old Testament. So that would have been the royal city of King Ahab, for instance, if you remember that wicked king of, of Israel. Um, that would have been that, that city of Samaria. And if you remember who Philip is, Philip is one of those deacons of that Jerusalem church. Earlier in the book of Acts, there were some disputes about uh, some things regarding the daily ministration. And the way that Jerusalem church was operating, people were having all things common. So they would sell their property and other things, and they would bring it and give it to the apostles, and then it would be distributed out to people. Um, And there was a dispute that came up about some of how, you know, how that was being distributed. And the apostles very wisely decided to appoint some men who could handle those kinds of issues so that the apostles could labor in the word and doctrine. And these deacons could take care of things like that daily ministration. And Philip is one of those men. Now, that doesn't mean uh, that those deacons were not also preachers. Uh, Stephen, in the last chapter, was one of those deacons. And Philip here is is uh, one of those deacons as well. And it says that he went down to the city of Samaria. Uh, now, if you look at a map, you might, you might be confused because usually if we say somebody went down somewhere, we mean they went south as you look at a map. Okay. But in the Bible, you always go up to Jerusalem. And if you're going anywhere from Jerusalem, you're going down to it. And uh, part of that is just because of the the physical geography of the land. Uh, Jerusalem is in a a very mountainous place. Um, And and, uh, that that, uh, kind of thing, even when you look at prophetic events and some of the the, uh, geological changes that are going to take place in that part of the world, in the kingdom and and in the the new earth, that mountainous part of the world today is going to be made a plain, and yet the temple is still going to stand on a mount 
and uh, you'll you'll definitely go up to Jerusalem, no matter which direction you're coming from, and you'll go down from Jerusalem. So that's the idea here. Samaria is actually up to the north of Jerusalem, but uh, he says he went down to the city of Samaria, because anywhere you go from Jerusalem, you're going down. And he goes to Samaria and says he preached Christ unto them. Now, you know, I mentioned previously that, that uh, these, these uh Believers that are suffering persecution, they go into Samaria. But but Philip here is somebody of a you know pretty pretty uh, high renown there in that Jerusalem church, and and realize that by this time Samaria is is not just the northern kingdom of Israel, but the Samaritans had had largely intermarried with Gentiles, and they had also set up sort of a, a parallel religious system to the the temple worship that took place at Jerusalem. And a lot of that goes back into a lot of Old Testament things uh, where King Jeroboam, you know, right after those kingdoms separated, King Jeroboam was the king in the in the northern kingdom. And he was he was worried that if all of his people had to go to Jerusalem to worship, which was in the southern kingdom, that some of them would just decide we're going to go live in the southern kingdom. Why, why live up here and then have to go to Jerusalem every year? And so he sets up a, a false system of religion based around golden calves and, and uh, things in the northern part of Israel. Uh, later, there's even a, 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 an altar that's, that's created there. One of the kings of Israel is off in Syria and he sees one of their altars and he says, I want to have one like that one. You know, so you have you have these different things that take place. And and so the Samaritans, um, that that Samaritan religion is still around today. It would have some similarities with Judaism, but uh, some differences as well. OK, and and uh, so at this time, the the Samaritans were they maybe wouldn't have been considered fully Gentiles, but they're not considered fully Jewish either. Um, back in in uh, Matthew chapter 10, when Christ sends out the disciples, he tells them not to enter in, into the the city of the Gentiles or the city of the Samaritans. So they're kind of treated a little bit separately from the Gentiles. They would have some some relationship with Judaism, but they're not considered fully Jewish either. They're kind of stuck in that middle ground where a lot of times people maybe of, of mixed race or whatever, you know, they kind of kind of uh, suffer those same kinds of prejudices. Um, although they're more in more than just a, a racial middle ground, they're in sort of that religious middle ground as well. And that's why Christ used Samaritans as examples like the, you know, when he tells about the, the good Samaritan. Um, it, if you're familiar with that parable, it would have been hard for uh, you know, a proud Jewish Israelite to admit that a Samaritan was his neighbor, but Christ tells the parable in such a way they have to admit he was a better neighbor than than the other Jews were, right? And and so for Philip to go down there, this is again part of this progression that's taking place as things move away from Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, some of the events that take place there it seems like uh, some people are even kind of surprised at it. Because Philip goes there, and while they're suffering all this persecution at Jerusalem, 
He goes to the city of Samaria and it says, The people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, verse 6, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. And, and he does these same miracles that uh, were associated with the ministry of Christ and here with the ministry of the disciples. There's unclean spirits. Uh, there's, there's people that are taken with palsies and that are lame and they're healed. Uh, one, one thing here in verse 7, by the way, that maybe is a little bit of a side point, but, but uh, maybe kind of an important thing nonetheless. There are oftentimes where critics of the Bible will say, you know, those, those ignorant, superstitious people back there, they thought that any time somebody had epilepsy, it meant they were possessed of a devil. Okay. Now, there, there are certainly uh, instances where possession by a devil might cause symptoms that might be might be uh, mistaken for something like epilepsy or whatever. But notice here that that it lists two separate things. There are two separate things. There are people that had unclean spirits that the spirits come out of them, and it says there were many that were taken with palsies and were lame were healed. Right. So it doesn't connect the the palsy here, which would be a, a shaking, maybe something like epilepsy. Uh, it doesn't connect that with the unclean spirits. It treats it as something else. But you see, both of those problems are, are dealt with here through the power of the Holy Spirit. Both the spiritual problems of, of possession, people are delivered from that, and they're delivered from just these physical maladies that they have that are not necessarily related to possession of devils. Okay? There's, there's, uh, those are two separate things. Um, and, and as you would expect, there's great joy in the city as people are delivered from these things. Now, we're, we're introduced here in verse 9 to a, a character that really only, only appears here in the Bible. And we'll spend uh, most of this lesson uh, talking about this man, Simon, that we see in verse 9. It says, but there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria giving out that himself was some great one. Uh, this name Simon is a, a, must have been a common name at the time. It's certainly a common name in the Bible. Uh, it's Peter's given name, for instance, Simon Peter. Uh, there's various Simons that are referred to in the Bible. Uh, the name would be related to the name of one of the tribes of Israel, the name Simeon. And uh, it's not an uncommon Jewish name today. Uh, you may remember uh, a, a Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Peres. That's the same name. Okay, we say it's Simon. That would be an, an anglicized form of the name. It would the Hebrew pronunciation would be something more akin to Shimon or or Simone. And um, this this Simon is often referred to as Simon Magus. This is a, a term that's often used to refer to him in in church tradition. And that name Magus would mean a magician or a sorcerer. Um, the, the Greek word there, when it talks about uh, sorcery, that he used sorcery, um, would be a, a, a derivation of that word in the Greek, Magos, Magus in the Latin. And, and so that's often how he's referred to, to distinguish him from other Simons in the Bible. Okay, so if somebody refers to Simon Magus, this, that's who they're referring to is this Simon here in Acts chapter 8. And uh, this is a prominent man. You, you see it says he had bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one. Verse 10 says, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, 
saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. And when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost, for as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So here you have these events uh, regarding this man, Simon Magus. And um, he, you know, there's, there's questions about this man. If you look him up, there's really quite a bit that's written about Simon Magus in church tradition that doesn't necessarily come from the Bible. Um, but it's, all, it's always important to remember that when you're reading these things in the Bible, you're reading an inspired account and an inerrant account. When you're reading church history and tradition, you're reading things that may have some historical value, but aren't, aren't, certainly aren't inspired and certainly aren't inerrant. Okay. And, and the reason I say that is because, um, when you read, when you read church tradition about Simon Magus, generally what's related is that after these events, that, that he went to Rome and that there was a cult associated with him and that he claimed to be, uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and the people worshipped him. And and so the question comes up, and even if you don't know all of that, and you're just reading the account here, the question comes up, is this guy Simon, is he really saved or not? What's, what's going on with him? Now, when you just read the text, it says that he believed. Okay? And so the inspired account that we have is that he believed the message that, that Philip was preaching. All right? And... Not only that, but it says that he was baptized. And this wasn't something that was taken lightly in, in this early church. If you remember John the Baptist, for instance, when Pharisees came to him and wanted to be baptized, he wouldn't baptize them, and he told them to, to go and bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. Right? He told them he wanted to see a change in their life first before he would baptize them. And, of course, they were not really believers, Right. And that was that was John's way of kind of rooting out those unbelievers who were coming just to be baptized because all the people were and they didn't want to lose stature in the sight of all the people. And and so here with with Simon Magus, now it doesn't relate to us what you know, what kind of of uh, test they might have used or, or whatever. But whatever it was, 
he was baptized. They agreed to baptize him. And, and, you know, we see the pattern in Scripture that that wasn't something that was taken lightly. And so I think if we just take the Scripture at its word, we have to conclude that he is a believer. Okay. And and so that maybe helps to, to frame some of the things that happen here with Simon Magus. It would it would make the, you know, the kinds of errors that he makes here to be, we could sort of classify them as the kinds of things that often new believers do you know they bring they bring some of their old religious baggage with them and and don't understand some things that are going on but all we can know for certain is what we have from the inerrant inspired account that we see here in acts and every indication that we have here is that he was a believer okay so when we when we look at uh, what's going on here when you consider simon's background the questions he asks may be kind of kind of natural Right. So he's somebody that no doubt profited greatly from the things he had been doing previously, the, the sorcery. And when the Bible talks about sorcery, that that can be that can be two things. That can be somebody who actually has spiritual power that's granted to them by by demonic or satanic means. Uh, that can be it can also just be trickery like we would think of a magician today. Uh, either way, he's using deception and falsehood to to make himself out to to have this great power, uh, whether it be the deception of you know a real power that is satanic in origin, or whether it be the deception of trickery. And and people are are viewing him as being this great power of God that that made him uh, no doubt a very powerful person, probably a very rich person as well. And when he becomes a believer. And when Peter and John come, you know, there's this great work going on there in Samaria uh, under under Philip. And so as word gets back to Jerusalem, Peter and John, who are these pillars at Jerusalem, they come there to Samaria as well. Um, This is, you know, the fact that this is happening in Samaria at the same time that they're suffering this great persecution at Jerusalem. um, Again, demonstrates, you know, some of the, the state that. Israel was in as a nation. And and so Peter and John decide they need to get down there where where this action is going on and where the word of God is being received. And they go there. And um, you notice these people, these, these believers in Samaria, they had believed and they were baptized, but there was a delay in them receiving the Holy Ghost. Remember on the day of Pentecost, Peter said, repent, be baptized, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. But Various places in the book of Acts, you'll see people who have believed they've been baptized, you know, part of that kingdom program, but they hadn't received the Holy Ghost uh, oftentimes until one of the apostles laid hands on them or, you know, some some later event. And that's what's going on here with the Samaritans. And so when Peter and John come, as they lay hands on these Samaritan believers, they receive the Holy Ghost. And it doesn't tell you specifically how that was manifested, but no doubt it was manifested through speaking in tongues and the other sign gifts that were associated under that program with receiving the Holy Ghost. And and as Simon sees this, you know, Simon knows all the all the things that he had power to do, and he sees this and he says, hey, that's a pretty neat trick. I wish I could do that. And And he goes to Peter and John, and he offers them money to show him or give him the power to do what they're doing. All right. Now there's a, there's a term for um, trying to purchase spiritual favors with money. 
And the term is actually taken from the name here of Simon. It's the term simony. And, and simony um, is, is considered a sin, and it would be this idea of trying to purchase um, some kind of, of spiritual favor. Um, in, in church history, the issue of simony has been important at a, at a few times in history. Um, one time would be during what was called the, the investiture controversy. And, you know, the Roman church, as the Roman church so entangled itself in the, in the affairs of government, and when you get into the, the Holy Roman Empire, the, there began to be a, a practice where the, the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, would appoint bishops and other church positions. Okay? And it was often done for political favor. Uh, most of the nations that were a part of that Holy Roman Empire, and I use the term Holy Roman Empire because that's what it's often called, not that it really was, it was really an unholy Roman Empire, but um, the the nobility would, the titles of nobility would pass down to the firstborn son, okay, and, and a lot of the land and estates and all those things would pass down to the firstborn son, so these nobles would have other sons that would be left out of that. And so a lot of times the other sons would go into the church and they would become priests. And then as a, as a favor or often in exchange for money, uh, you know, their, their noble father would pay the Holy Roman Emperor to appoint his son as a bishop. And the, and a bishop had a lot of the powers that we would associate with royalty. Okay. And uh, at some point, the, the Roman church decided that the emperor shouldn't have that power, the pope should have that power. And there was a, a controversy over it, and the pope won out. And that was, and so the result of that was that, that the pope appointed the bishops, which still wound up being largely the same kind of arrangement. Uh, it was just a different guy who had the power to do it. Okay, And, and so simony was talked about a lot in, in connection with that. Uh, you know, certainly in the Protestant Reformation, um, the, the way that indulgences were, were distributed and often money was exchanged in order to get an indulgence from the church, the Protestants condemned that as simony. And the, the Roman church today, uh, they, you know, they officially condemn simony, but they define simony in such a narrow way. I mean, they define simony in such a way that it, it really has to be, you know, a direct exchange as a, as a purchase. You know, you may know people who, who are in the Roman church who have paid to have masses said for a family member, right? And you think about that and you think, well, that would seem like it's simony. But the Roman church defends itself by saying, well, that's, that's a donation that they're giving. Um, it's not, it's, you're not really purchasing it, right? And, and so there's a lot of mental gymnastics. They go around so that they can say, simony is forbidden, but there's all these things you can give us money to do, you know? And, and of course, they're not the only ones. You see this in a lot of, a lot of religious systems. But all that is named after this man here, this Simon, uh, because here you see him offering money for this power from Peter. Now, 
Peter's reaction to it is less than favorable, we could say. Um, he says to him in verse 20, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. And, and he tells him really that the issue is not how much money he pays. He says he has no part or lot in this matter, meaning the ability to, to give the Holy Ghost, uh, because he says his heart is not right in the sight of God. Okay. Now, again, the text tells us that he was a believer, but here he's kind of, you know, falling back into those, that old way of thinking. He doesn't, he either doesn't understand or he's, or he's gone back into a, you know, a wrong way of thinking about spiritual things. And he's, he's desiring this power just for, you know, just for fleshly reasons. Um, Peter Peter does not indicate here that he's not saved. Uh, he does say, "Thy money perish with thee," right? But but perish there is probably just a reference to physical death. He's saying your your money is no more eternal than what what you are. Your money is going to die with you. Uh, he's not. It doesn't seem to be that he's cursing him to death, like you see with Ananias and Sapphira, who lied about about uh, some property they had sold they had sold and then kept money for themselves. They were punished with death. It doesn't indicate that here with Simon, but certainly Peter is giving him a strong rebuke. And um, he tells him to repent of his wickedness, and he tells him to pray God, to ask God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. And, and Peter's conclusion, he says, I perceive thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now, those are terms certainly that would refer to unbelievers being in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. But certainly there are believers as well that are living a carnal life that can be in the in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. It's interesting, Simon's response to Peter, because Peter says, you need to repent. You need to pray to God if if he'll forgive you. And in verse 24, it says, Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. That's an interesting response. And again, I think it, you know, it represents those kind of those heathen views that Simon would have had previously that you need a priest or somebody to pray to God for you. Right. So he doesn't, he doesn't just repent and pray to God. Um, he asked Peter to pray for him to, you know, to be that, that, uh, intercessor when really what he needs to do is deal with God directly and and that's really where the Bible leaves the story so on the one hand it, it doesn't tell us that Simon repented there seems to be some remorse there because he he understands he needs forgiveness but he still seems to not understand what the source of that forgiveness is right but um, uh, it doesn't tell us write out that he that he repented although it doesn't tell us that he didn't either um certainly the the uh the attitude of those apostles when they go back to jerusalem is they're just overjoyed at what's going on in in samaria these people that are that are receiving the word but you see how easy it can be for for heathen practices to to creep in to, you know, in this case, it would be the, the church and the, or the, the kingdom church, but certainly true of the church, the body of Christ as well, for, for heathen practices to creep in. You know, Peter gives a strong rebuke there. And, you know, maybe some people would view Peter's words as, as harsh or something. But, but Peter recognizes the danger that 
that poses this wrong thinking that Simon has, and, and he rebukes it harshly. He nips it in the bud because those things can come in and, and take root, and pretty soon you have some completely false religious system that's based around, you know, some some thing that somebody brought in from heathenism, paganism, and those kinds of things. And, and uh, it's something to be very careful about. Um, the, the truth of the matter is when we examine uh, Christian practice and, and church practice even today, that uh, heathen traditions and things have been have been brought in to far too great a, a degree and honestly speaking a greater degree than any of us know i'm certain there's there's things even that that uh, we haven't identified that really are not biblical christianity but are our heathenism and in those cases we can we can praise god for his grace and uh, and thank god that the the message of the gospel going out is not completely dependent on us having every little thing right, although certainly we should endeavor to have those things right, but uh, we can thank God for the, the corrective character of God's Word, that it, it uh, helps to create that clarity and, and purity uh, with regard to the, these matters of truth. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.